Hello and welcome to Affiliate, the CW podcast. Download our app to stay up to date with the latest labour and trade union news. Search for Affiliate CWU in your app store. We're now approaching the end of the year, which I think all of us could agree wasn't a good stretch of time for Labour. We've seen a Tory by-election victory in the former heartland of Hartlepool. We saw Labour getting its worst ever by-election result in Cheshire and Amersham. A bruising local election result in May saw the party lose control of eight councils, while a tense by-election in Joe Cox's former seat of Batley and Spen saw the party narrowly hold on. All the while, factional warfare rages on between socialist and right-wingers. Party funding is, to be frank, on its arse, and Keir Starmer is bombing in the polls. Whatever way you want to look at it, it's safe to say that this year hasn't been the one. At a national level, discussion over this constant bad news for Labour usually focuses on the fates of individual politicians, the ongoing factional machinations at Westminster, and the influence of Labour legacy figures like Peter Mandelson. The obvious question of why Labour is losing so much support among so many working-class people in so many working-class areas of the country tends to be avoided by journalists who far prefer the cliquey comforts of the Westminster lobby to investigating the deep problems that Britain's major opposition party faces. Thankfully, these questions are being thought about in a serious way by some people, including the industrial wing of the Labour movement. While 2021 might have been a year of stagnation for the Labour Party itself, the trade unions that founded the party in the first place have seen a year of self-reflection. In various big unions, candidates have been elected on mandates pledging to create a distance between themselves and the Labour leadership, choosing to focus instead on an aggressive industrial agenda and to warn a complacent Labour Party that they won't be getting money for nothing from the unions. This warning wasn't exactly heeded at September's Labour Party conference, where the party's London-based leadership seemed to go out of its way to distance itself from socialist or trade unionist demands. Unsurprisingly, this didn't come without significant blowback. Towards the end of conference, it was announced that the Bakers' Union, one of the earliest founders of Labour at the turn of the 20th century, had just voted to follow the likes of the RMT in disaffiliating, saying that Labour has travelled away from the aims and hopes of working-class organisations like ours. And a day earlier, Starmer's Employment Rights Minister Andy MacDonald resigned his role in the Shadow Cabinet after having claimed that his position was untenable. Why? Because, in his capacity of a Minister of Starmer's, he was expected to argue against the £15 minimum wage and living wage sick pay in a meeting with trade unionists and quite rightly refused to do so. Speaking alongside MacDonald at the Tribune rally on Monday night of conference, the CW's General Secretary, Dave Ward, defended the step that he'd taken. Andy, Dave told the hundreds of delegates and trade unionists gathered in the audience, had always been a strong supporter of a new deal for workers, as opposed to what he called the crap deal preferred by the Labour leadership. As he went on, Dave reminded the audience that the CW will still most likely be paying its nominal affiliation fees to Labour, but received repeated standing ovations for telling them how the union will be taking much of its funding out to Westminster politics and give it to the real people who are really delivering for working people up and down the country. What's crucial about understanding the CWU's direction of travel is that it wasn't all doom and gloom for Labour in May. In Wales, the calm, pragmatic and socialist leadership of Mark Drakeford saw Labour take half the seats in the Senate, its best result in years. In Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham pulled off the amazing feat of winning every single ward in this mayoral region of 2,750,000 people, while his colleague in West Yorkshire, Tracy Brabham, also won comfortably. In the city of Salford, Labour's administration under Paul Dennett not only held firm, but actually turned a Tory safe seat red, an astonishing achievement given the circumstances. And in the nearby city of Preston, Matt Brown saw his council also hold on to all the seats that it contested. These results were some of the few happy things of the local elections for the Labour movement. There were success stories that flew in the face of the received establishment wisdom about the so-called Red Wall and its rush to the right. True enough, 
The Tories took plenty of seats in northern working-class former Labour heartlands that night, but they seemed to stall in places where Labour were actually doing something. These should be the success stories that Labour should have been heralding, but Starmer's leadership seemed not to be interested. Why? And that future is different in Wales because of the ambitious policy Welsh Labour in government has pursued. Free prescriptions and free breakfasts in our primary schools. The most generous childcare offer for working parents anywhere in the United Kingdom. We didn't have to reintroduce bursaries for nurses because they were never scrapped in Wales. Fracking doesn't have to be prevented in Wales because it's never been allowed. We're building council houses again. We've abolished the right to buy. Our children are protected from physical punishment. And our railways are back under public control. As we can hear from that little clip from Mark Drakeford's speech to conference, it seems to be that the sort of policies that Starmer thinks make Labour unelectable are actually very popular with the sort of working-class left-behind voters that the party have been losing for years. These administrations allow people to feel like, even if these Labour figures aren't building utopias, they are real Labour administrations, worlds apart from Starmer's blandness out of power or new Labour's neglect when it had some. Offering people basic levels of improvement in their lives shouldn't be controversial for a working-class party, and it should be obvious to Labour that when it promises the implementation of progressive change, there is a huge groundswell of support for it. Andy Burnham and Tracy Brabin's popularity when discussing bringing back shoddy northern bus services back into municipal ownership is a perfect example of this, and could be a route to rebuilding the connections between Labour and working-class communities that have been lost for decades now. This disconnection isn't just the fault of the current Labour leadership. It should be said with honesty that under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, far too many ordinary people didn't really feel the wave of change in Labour that politicals either loved or loathed. Barely any MPs changed, too little Labour administrations shifted in policy terms, and far too little work was done in local communities. In reality, Corbynism was far too concerned with almost withholding high office from Labour's right wing, rather than working to remould the party in its own image and to help affect real change in the here and now, where people can feel it and make their judgement on it. This isn't fair in all cases though, and there are some amazing examples of what's going on across the country. In Preston, a de-industrialised Lancashire mill town with a population of around 140,000, Council Leader Matt Brown has been a national pioneer in the promotion of community wealth building. The principles of community wealth building aren't complicated. It can be summed up as such. The money that goes into local economy should benefit the local community. Where most councils these days seem to think that the solution to problems is more austerity, the encouraging of gentrification or corporate outsourcing agendas, Community wealth building councils are interested in building up what are called anchor institutions, whereby institutions can be created that serve the community instead of cash-stuffed corporations, as well as create an independent source of funding in the absence of any help from national government. This sort of politics was tested in places like Cleveland, Ohio, as well as in the Basque Country, where large-scale cooperatives such as Mondragon hold a significant sway in society, and it's the sort of thing that Corbyn-supported figures like Brown want to bring to Lancashire. Speaking to Matt Brown in Preston, you can tell his enthusiasm to discuss Labour's policies in the town. Yeah, the Preston model, it's a series of policies which the Labour Council is leading on, uh, and it involves a number of institutions to actually try and build a more resilient, fairer and democratic local economy. So crucially, it's what the Council does directly, but it's trying to influence other institutions, uh, trade unions, the community and local businesses to do the same. So it's a series of policies trying to transform our local economy for the better. 
I wanted to ask Matt exactly what it is Preston Council was doing differently from other Labour councils. Well, I think most Labour councils are doing pretty good things. We just for some time have had a very different approach that we feel that we need to try and change the system locally, the economic system. And obviously we've seen the coronavirus pandemic and how long-standing inequalities due to the neoliberal economic model we've had arguably since 1979 have really uh, exposed the structural inequalities as well in terms of you know race, gender and disability and other things. So obviously we're trying to change things here. So crucially, it's a number of policies. So it's encouraging a real living wage. It's encouraging trade union recognition when we buy in goods and services. It's looking, trying to get our, ourselves and our public pension fund to invest directly in the local economy. It's making sure that our big institutions both uh, purchase from locally based businesses rooted in our community, but also try and recruit in the areas of uh, highest deprivation in terms of you know where they actually recruit people from. But crucially as well, it's trying to have a more democratic economy. So we're establishing a regional cooperative bank. We're expanding the number of worker-owned businesses. So we've got five new worker co-ops that are registered. And crucially as well, we're looking at other things, as well as looking to directly build council housing again. We're looking at how we can establish a community land trust potentially. And we're looking at developing our commercial economy in many ways in local public ownership. And on a day-to-day basis, in terms of the everyday lives of the working man and woman in Preston, what would these proposals exactly mean? The, the, this is a decision to build a £42 million cinema development. Uh, the only way we can actually do it is if we do it ourselves, because commercial investors won't get the return that's needed. And I mentioned earlier about the, you know, the big developer-type-led approach that we've now rejected, thankfully. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to create hundreds of jobs, if not thousands, indirectly. Uh, It's going to be local public ownership. Um, And crucially, we're going to have a say over the companies that we use, the standards of labour and the environmental standards and who we can potentially recruit into the jobs as well. So it's very exciting. And, uh, you know, it's, again, part of this democratisation agenda as far as we can because, you know, we're still comparatively small as an authority and local government's very restricted. So... You know, I've come to the conclusion some time back that you know we've got to try and get out the straitjacket that the Tory government, Tory government put us in. So this is why we're very keen on alternative models like worker-owned businesses and communities, you know, community food co-ops, community land trusts, alternative banking arrangements, council-owned companies like Paul Dennett to establish council housing again. You know, I believe that we're that restricted in local government. Yes, we'll do everything we can. Uh, with the powers that we still have, but we're then going to set up these alternative institutions within communities which will actually lift people up. And this is where I think the Communication Workers Union and other unions come into it in the sense that they have a huge role in actually supporting this agenda. And um, I find it very exciting with what we can achieve, but it's a big question whether or not we can bring this to scale, whether we're going to move beyond something that's a good idea and has done bits of things in certain places to something that's really transformed communities because if you go to say for example the cooperative economies of uh, Amelia Romana or Mondragon were you know in the you know in the the largest city in the region of Amelia Romana in Italy uh, I think the 15 of the top 50 companies are worker-owned firms in Mondragon over half the economy in that town is in worker ownership if you get anywhere close to that kind of democratic, socialised economy, what you do see is huge improvements in life expectancy, the mental health of the community, 
as well as wage levels that people actually participated in the business they produce the wealth from. And obviously, because they actually own the companies, you don't see the wealth extraction. So obviously, very big ideas. And obviously, you know, we're, try, we're obviously trying to bring this to scale in Preston. And obviously, we've got five worker-owned companies registered now. You know, obviously, it's going to take time to build that up. But, you know, that's a very strong plank of the stuff we're doing, along with the other stuff that I mentioned before. But it's essential because deep down, I'm very convinced by a radical argument that the people who create the wealth of the companies they work for, the enterprises, should at least control the business to a degree. And what would these radical proposals mean in practice, you know, on a day-to-day basis to the worker of Preston? Well, what it, what it does mean, I mean, in terms of the, what we've achieved already, it means that, you know, those in locally-based companies, family-owned companies, are winning more contracts and there's more people in, in jobs, locally-based people. So that has been one benefit of, of the way we've actually applied the economics since... 2013 more people are seeing a real living wage we're also getting more affordable housing because we're finding ways to use land creatively to provide affordable housing but crucially this quite small cooperative economy we're growing if we can get that to hundreds within Preston it means that basically they're going to be businesses which are more likely to survive they're going to uh, you know going to have higher wages potentially and I think that you know the their own destiny will be in their hands, really, because people are conditioned to think you've got to work for a boss. The great thing about a cooperative business is you're your own boss, but you do obviously have to share power and get on with other people, which is often a bit of a challenge, as we all know in politics, Marcus. But I think the principle of it does actually, if it's applied correctly, I think it's transformative for people. And to put it more concisely to our members, how could he see trade unionists such as the CWU and its membership working alongside these policies and helping to implement these proposals? Well, I think it's amazing what we could achieve. And obviously, thank you very much for the support from the Communication Workers' Union, supporting the motion at conference to support, uh, you know, Labour councils that are actually doing things that do chime really strongly with their uh, with their members' interests. Uh, I think a lot of it's around raising awareness. I think that could be huge with unions like the Communication Workers' Union. But also, you know, imagine if they had a campaign to get the members to shift their money into our community bank, the North West Mutual that we're establishing, and that grew to 10% of the economy. You know, that would then potentially be lending to 2 billion across the region, supporting local businesses, local jobs. You know, imagine if they, they supported our, our food co-ops, which we're looking at at the moment. Again, the pilot found that they saved 30, 40 pound on a shop. You know, that could really tackle poverty, not just for the wider community, but for the members. And then I'm not sure if, if worker ownership would be an option, but obviously we do see lots of exploitation, especially in the uh, the gig economy by platform corporations. And, you know, we're trying to look at how we can get community support to find alternatives to them, really. So people self-organise around a platform, but they actually own the platform and the business themselves instead of having these dreadful corporations that reclassify people as self-employed to avoid paying the minimum wage and holidays, you know, they might insure the food, but they don't insure the individual. You know, that kind of behaviour by big corporations, in my opinion, is inappropriate, especially after we've seen how people have put themselves at risk during the pandemic. And the people who put themselves at risk have often been low paid. They've not been middle class people. They've got, you know, well paid professional jobs in rural communities. They've been working class people, you know, who are on low pay and have to provide for the families. 
And crucially as well, as I said, many of them have a BME community. I mean, I had to self-isolate on three occasions and I got food delivered. You know, I think there's only one one occasion out of about 15 or 20, there was someone who wasn't from a BME background there. So again, you know, the minority communities have really disproportionately been effective as well. So, you know, we're trying to raise awareness of these models with them and try to get into the communities and with council support and support from other institutions, including our university as well. You know, we're trying to raise awareness that, you know, you can do things a different way, but it's not easy because people... You know, the the current economic model, there's a whole, you know, the press, the Conservative Party, big business, they say that, you know, it's got to be the way it is, competition, you know, kind of like admiring people who are very wealthy, even though they might not behave in a way that's very positive. So everything kind of like he's kind of like against doing things differently. But, you know, we're trying to at least have that conversation here in Preston. And unlike many Lancashire red wall towns, whose voters are increasingly cynical about Labour at best, these ambitious policies seem to be popular with voters. A close ally of Preston Council is only a half-hour train journey away. In the city of Salford, which borders with Manchester, Mayor Paul Dennett has been focusing intently on building council housing. The council is taking on the developers, setting up the biggest council house building scheme in the country for nearly 60 years, which most fellow Labour councils told them was an impossible task. It has been working closely with trade unions to help improve wages for workers, to in-source services, and, just like Preston, to encourage more cooperatives, more mutual societies and more ethical small businesses. Whereas many other areas of the post-industrial north are struggling, Salford is growing and coping in some of the harshest economic circumstances any of us have known in our lifetimes. We are building council houses again, something most people told us was impossible. We are insourcing services putting people before profit, and we're going to restore Buell Hill Mansion and set up a heritage commission to help find money for other buildings across our great city. Having heard this sort of work, I imagine many listeners will think that they'd rather see this sort of work being done across the board rather than be examples or exceptions and that they'd prefer seeing Labour politicians working on things like this instead of things like lobbying for bookies, property companies or debt agencies. It's the sort of politics that the CWU's new political strategy is seeking to support in any way possible. But despite the good work of the administrations we've discussed today, this can only go so far. Broader questions have to be asked, particularly in this unique period of history. The last 18 months have been the bleakest time that most of us have ever lived through. But it has also really shown who matter in this society, and it tends not to be the people doing the best out of it. Speaking to Dave Ward, the CWU's General Secretary, he believes that there is now a new feeling in the air. Yeah, well, I think it's time to rebuild um, the trade union and labour movement. But I think to do that, we've got to recognise that there are new models of collectivism that have emerged during the pandemic that are very powerful. And, you know, I see our movement sometimes and we seem to spend as much time arguing with each other as we do... Uh, you know, arguing with, with the Tories. And, you know, the government at the moment, this particular Tory government, for me, uh, are one of the most divisive, if not the most divisive, that I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. And what we've got to do is build collectivism. And, and I'm saying to trade union leaders around the country, to our own reps, you know, we need to think a little bit differently about what our role is now. So this is why the CWU has um, 
you know, put forward a, a very strong strategy that's connected. And, you know, I'm asking our people not to see themselves as, you know, they're this particular rep, that particular rep. Uh, you know, we're industrial, we're political. No, we're one trade union, we're one movement. And we're about bringing, bringing change. Um, and we don't wait for politicians to, to bring that change in. We do it now. Uh, I think it's about connecting um, the world of work issues, how unfair and the imbalance of power and wealth that's in the economy. Uh, I think it's about championing a lot of the causes that we support individually, fights against racism. Um, it, it's about, we've just had a speaker, uh, a guest speaker. We chose not to bring a high profile politician to our conference. We bought a guy called Dave Kelly, who, who runs uh, Fans for Food Bank organization uh, and the Right to Food campaign. And, you know, we want to see our branches, um, you know, joining up now to local community organizations. We want uh, not to take them over, to be part of what they're building, which is giving people the confidence that we can change things, you know, across the UK uh, and hopefully internationally. And, you know, our role is to recognise this, it's to bring our strengths that we, in how we organise in workplaces. You know, if we're having a ballot for industrial action, we put a lot of time and effort, obviously, into connecting with people. Um, and we know and understand the power of, of that strength, collective strength. Um, what we're saying is the trade unions of the future have got to excel in the workplace and outside the workplace as well. Dave believes that this moment is a unique one for stepping up the game of the trade union movement. I, I think I would summarise the strategy uh, as new, um, as thinking beyond the current political party system. Uh, you heard me yesterday saying we shouldn't disaffiliate from the Labour Party. I would also summarise it by doing things rather than just keep talking about things. And, you know, who wins out of that is working people. Now, it's about all of us moving beyond our comfort zones and taking the values and principles of a trade union, which, you know, we should be able to bridge every divide in society. Um, and it's about harnessing that strength. You know, we practice the principle of solidarity, uh, but sometimes we don't do enough. We do it when there's a big workplace ballot going on. Well, we need to do it more now. We need to do it all the time. And, you know, I think who wins from it is clearly working people, where we need to shift the balance of forces uh, back towards working people. I was making a, a reference today about this particular strategy uh, with what happened after the Second World War. So, you know, people made sacrifices across the world fighting against fascism. Um, and people said at the end of the Second World War, enough's enough. You know, we're going to rebuild our lives. We deserve something. We've made those sacrifices. Um, so out of that came the welfare state. Out of that came the National Health Services. Uh, out of that came proper building of, of houses for people, council houses. So everybody benefited. And, you know, that is what we're trying to do. Uh, and we're offering it as a way forward. In terms of who loses out, well, the, the Tories and the government lose out, the people who aren't carrying out change. Um, 
the people who, who lose out are the big institutions, uh, financial institutions that are making money because they've got money. Um, and the people who gain out of it are the people who really put the effort and time in to build their lives for their families, um, you know, decent jobs, decent services that we can all benefit from. Uh, I think politicians potentially lose out in mainstream parties if they don't get on board with it. And crucially for Dave, the CWU have to be the ones leading it. You know, we don't want to keep sort of having factional fights in the Labour movement. But equally, we want to be very clear, this isn't a time for tinkering at the edges with change. You know, this is why, personally, you know, I, I'm not taken at the moment with the current direction uh, of the Labour leadership, um, because I just don't think they're being ambitious enough about what can be achieved. And I don't think they're reading the signs of what the particular, you know, what people have done during the pandemic and how they're feeling, how their families are feeling. The burning issue of our time is inequality, and you see it across uh, race, class, gender, and what we're trying to do is connect all of those fights, and we're trying to make sure that we can change you know, society with a new social settlement that brings us all full, and you know, I believe that the trade union movement has to lead that fight. I've no doubt that many people listening at home will have very mixed feelings about all of this. Politics at the moment is frustrating. How can the Tories preside over havoc, still get away with the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, throw key workers under the bus, yet still romp home in the polls and be able to set the political agenda? And while all this is happening, how can Labour look on? Now, as ever, the solution to many problems in society comes with people coming together to discuss how to change things and how to imagine alternatives to what is currently happening. The trade union movement might not win everything it wants in this context, but to paraphrase Bob Crow, if you never fight, you don't win anything at all. Thank you for listening to Affiliate, the CW podcast.